I do want to ask real quick before we get started, what movies sure. have you seen in the theater recently, if any? Oof. You know, I actually, I don't actually think I've seen a movie in the theater in a little bit, but I, I cannot, I, I, I bought Knives Out and Parasite. Okay. Those both qualify. And, They're new, new movies. Yeah. And they were fantastic. So yeah. it was, uh, it was very exciting. It, it's, I don't know what it is sometimes it about like being able to go out to the theater. I, I'm, I'm in that like progress where like Friday nights I'm exhausted and sometimes I'm performing and sometimes Saturday nights I'm exhausted and I'm performing as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't really kind of get a chance to, to go out and, and take in a movie as much as I want to. So I watch a lot of movies on planes, right? <laughs> which is, which is a hundred percent how every director and actor in oh, absolutely work of art. That yeah. is cinema. <laughs> yeah. I'm part of AMC a list. And so I try okay. and I'm not very good at it, but I try to go see at least one a week. Nice. But it usually more qualifies in like two a month, which is okay. still, you know, kind of worth it. So yeah, that's not bad. I, I feel like I hate to say this, but if the movies that I've seen or that I've gone to the theater to see last year were the My Hero Academia movie mm-hmm. or Academia. God, I can't believe I said that wrong. <laughs> was that movie when that came out for a theatrical, like a limited theatrical release? Like I went with a friend to go see that. And just about any Marvel movie, I feel like I try to go see Weekend mm-hmm. of. I don't I don't know why, but it's just I I just I grew up reading a lot of comic books. And collecting a lot of like Marvel and DC cards. And so there's just a part of me that just loves going and seeing Marvel movies. I want to be very clear. <laughs> Only Marvel movies. Looking at you, DC Cinematic <laughs> Universe. Because you guys have been screwing this up for a long time. Yeah, I saw Birds of Prey and I didn't care for it. But Okay. That, that seems to be just me. I seem to be in the minority on that one at least. <laughs> I saw Suicide Squad opening weekend. Uh, <laughs> and, I, mean, I, I saw it and, I, and there was so much negative press that it actually made me want to go see the movie more. Like I was at dinner and my wife was like, do you, do you really want to go and see this? And, and the answer was yes. Like I, I was encouraged because so many people had given it negative reviews that I wanted to go out and check it out. Mm-hmm. I did so. And it was stupid funny. And yeah. I walked away from it just thinking, you know what? That was good. I'm never going to watch this again. Uh-huh. But like I had an enjoyable time with a bunch of characters. I love Killer Croc. It was finally cool to kind of see Killer Croc on the big screen. That was neat. And then I was like, all right, I think I'm good. I don't, I don't think I need to revisit this ever again. <laughs> yeah. The thing about Suicide Squad is that it did have some redeeming qualities, namely Harley Quinn, Will Smith, uh, a couple right. other maybe redeeming sequences. But then I look at Fantastic Four, the new one. And that one, that's one of the worst movies I've seen in my life. (laughs) Okay, well, let's go ahead and launch into things. Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode of Cinescope. This is episode 87, and I have been talking with Sean Paul Ellis from the Saturday Morning Cartoons podcast. Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Chad. How are you? I'm doing well as well. I'm in the middle of my spring break vacation, 
And so uh, I, I just got back from camping for a little bit, came home, watched a movie, and now I'm talking about that movie. So life's pretty good. <laughs> How about with you? Uh, things going good in D.C., yeah, right? That's where Things are at. going well. I feel like, you know, given the, the current topics and news, I probably should have picked another movie like World War Z that would have been a little bit more topical and relevant. But here we are right now. Yeah. Talking, <laughs> talking about the thing. How about you introduce yourself first? Oh, sure. Talk about what your podcast is and your career and whatever. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I am the co-host of the Saturday Morning Cartoons podcast. It's Morning with a U. We are a Collider podcast, weekly podcast that does anything from uh, reviews and interviews related to anything that's animated all the way back from the 50s and 60s up to current day things that are currently in production such as the recent interview that we had with Warren Ellis about Castlevania season three that's on Netflix. So fantastic that we get an opportunity to not only talk about some of these cartoons and review them, but we also get a chance to interact with some of the creators and kind of talk to them about their process, what we can expect, which has been fantastic, especially if you think about Noelle Stevenson from the Netflix She-Ra. She's been great just kind of about, you know, letting us interview and talk to her about what we're going to be seeing, you know, hopefully for season four of She-Ra. So. Uh, always fun. So thanks for having me on, Chad. Absolutely. And I would definitely recommend if you're a fan of cartoons to go check out Saturday Morning Cartoons. I, I typically go through and listen to the episodes for shows that either I've seen and enjoyed or seen and didn't enjoy or am aware of and have no plans on ever watching. And so I just want oh. to hear you roast it. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's, that's the enjoyable part about this is that we have watched, we've done over 250 episodes now. So uh -huh. some episodes have had two or more cartoons that we've talked about because we have done like March Madness style brackets previously. So over 250 cartoons that we've discussed. It's always fun when somebody asks us a question or recommends a cartoon that we haven't talked about yet because that's a moment where we're like, oh, we are really going to make this person excited because we're going to talk about all the things they love or we're going to get on and we're going to talk about all the problems that that cartoon had <laughs> and just really not ingratiate ourselves with the recommendations. So it's, it's, a, it's a delicate balance. Yeah, a, a cartoon I rewatched recently that I was worried whether it would hold up or not is Recess Schools Out. Or, or Recess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which ended up holding up excellent. It is a great cartoon. Recess is great. Yeah, I yeah. watched all of it on Disney+. Plus. Oh, nice. Anyways, let's go ahead and transition into our discussion. We're going from Recess on Disney to <laughs> John Carpenter's The Thing. <laughs> Seamless segue. Seamless yes, segue. That's, that's what we aim for. <laughs> uh, this movie was released on June 25th of 1982, was directed by John Carpenter, who, uh, among others, has directed Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, They Live in the Mouth of Madness, and Escape from L.A. And you have a couple notes here on this movie in particular. Sure. It was interesting because this was the first of a series of movies that then Carpenter went back and dubbed sort of his Apocalypse trilogy. I have watched two out of the three, and I guess the two are, or the two that we, outside of the thing, are Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. In the Mouth of Madness, I was drawn to because I think it came in and around the time that Sam Neill was in Jurassic Park. And so that's what drew me to it. I had no idea that it was a Lovecraftian sort of horror film, but kind of understanding the Apocalypse trilogy that Carpenter would have put together, it makes sense given some of the weird kind of body horror things that go on in the thing that it would sort of fall in line. So 
I'm excited now because this is at least this has introduced me to the idea of going and watching Prince of Darkness, which I'm super pumped to watch. I'll admit this is the first John Carpenter movie I've seen. Um, Halloween has been on my really? list for a while. Yeah, Halloween is one uh, that is on my list. I got to horror late. My first horror film was when I was 18, I think, or 17, and it was The Strangers. Okay. And really dug it. And I've explored back on some horror films, but there's still a lot of blind spots for me. So I could talk more about that in a minute. This movie was written by Bill Lancaster. It was based on a book, Who Goes There, by John W. Campbell Jr., which I'm actually really interested in reading now. This sounds very much like The Andromeda Strain by Michael Crichton. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and it's interesting, too, because, spoiler alert, Who Goes There is actually a shortened version of a larger manuscript that he wrote called Frozen Hell. and. Frozen Hell was, I guess, discovered and they, they did a Kickstarter to say, hey, we want to raise money to be able to kind of like publish this and distribute it. And now we're in 2020 and they're thinking about going back and redoing the thing with additional parts from the original John W. Campbell Jr. Frozen Hell elongated manuscript. So mm. there's a part of me that's just like, that's kind of crazy. That's something that somebody would have written so long ago. And then he shortened it in order to get it published is now like we're discovering a, like a lost work and trying to adapt that. I'm kind of curious to see how that'll play out. I'm a Thing fan, obviously. So I'm, I'm, I'm on board with it. Yeah, I think it adds new merit to the idea of a remake for people who do consider this among the, one of the best horror films of all time. To, to just say, hey, we're remaking The Thing is one thing. But to say, hey, we're remaking the thing, but also there's all this other new stuff that we can add in and make it new and different and revitalized gives it new relevance. Right. And it's, it's just so bizarre to think that too, that like there was a, there was a movie that came out in 1951 called the thing from another world, which was based off of who goes there. And so technically John Carpenter's the thing is sort of a remake of the thing from another world that was inspired. So it's just, it's bizarre to see how one novella has inspired so many different points of media and kind of how that's influenced pop culture. So it's kind of cool to see John Carpenter kind of, you know, early stages of his career kind of getting into this. So very fun. The music is by Ennio Morricone, sort of. I was reading that maybe not much of his music actually made it into the film. No, it didn't. But just because his name's on it, I'll list some <laughs> of the movies that you have definitely heard Ennio Morricone's music from. A lot of the films of Sergio Leone, the Spaghetti Western, so Fistful of Dollars, For a Few Dollars More, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West, and Once Upon a Time in America. And then there's other movies, The Mission, The Untouchables, Cinema Paradiso, Casualties of War, Bugsy, Mission to Mars, and then most recently, Quentin Tarantino's film, The Hateful Eight. And it's crazy because there are some scenes from The Hateful Eight, which had Kurt Russell in it as well, that were inspired by The Thing. And there are a lot of very thematic elements in between Hateful Eight as well as also The Thing, just in terms of like snow, isolation, destitute remote location with no way of really getting out, and like, you know, threat, like internal threat mm -hmm. in terms of what's happening. And it's crazy to see that Marconi did this music as well. And you are correct. Not a lot of his music <laughs> really, truly actually made it into this film. It's, it's kind of a shame because he is a great composer, so mm -hmm. it's a bummer. Yeah, Carpenter himself recorded some things to specifically spice up the tension scenes because Carpenter is a composer in his own right. He's the one who composed the theme for Halloween, I believe, if I'm remembering that off the top of my head correctly. So that's that. This movie stars Kurt Russell, A. Wilford Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Keith David, Richard Dysart, Dysart, Charles, Hall 
Charles Hallahan, Peter Maloney, <laughs> Richard Mazur, Donald Moffat, Joel Polis, and Thomas Waits. So a lot of not as known actors, probably the two that obviously stand out are Kurt Russell and A. Wilford Brimley, who gained fame through other means as well, <laughs> at least on the internet. <laughs> yeah, true, true. And, and just Keith David being in this uh-huh. is just something that, I mean, this man has had a career over tons and tons of stuff. He was the, the voice of, of Al Simmons in Spawn cartoon. He's just been in so much stuff, even Requiem for a Dream. So, I mean, to see like a very young, early Keith David, pretty crazy. We always start off these conversations with talking about our first time watching the movie, which for me was today. So I'm curious <laughs> to hear how you got introduced to this movie. Yeah. I used to work at a blockbuster video in the late 90s, and I didn't watch it then, and it feels like a big regret. I really kind of, as you mentioned, sort of like getting into a lot of horror late in the game. When Netflix had been introduced, I guess, and had been like distributing DVDs for people, this was a DVD that I got from Netflix like in the mid-2000s, and it had been a recommendation from somebody. They had talked about it. I was very kind of curious about it, really kind of loving a lot of stuff from the, the 80s and 90s, just sort of kind of like a something that's a little bit grittier, uh, a little bit more kind of pulpy. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Warriors and some of the, the movies that came out about like gang violence in like the late 70s, early 80s and sort of how they were dramatized. And like Class of 1984 is one of those like quintessential movies to like check out that's sort of like in that genre as well. And then I kind of moved a little bit more from Netflix into like Southeast Asian horror watching a lot of like the horror films that I missed from like the eighties and nineties. And the thing was like a, a big one of them. And I think the friend that had recommended this uh, was kind of a lot into some of the like David Cronenberg movies that they have that are out there. So that kind of, it all kind of made sense for me when I finally sat down to watch it. And it was, it was a movie that it felt kind of like very simple in the mid two thousands watching it. And like, I don't know. There was something about it that just kind of really clicked for me because I, I felt like it had, in some cases, multiple themes. And so there were so many things that were involved in this, ranging anywhere from sort of like a whodunit to suspense to science fiction kind of horror. And then sort of, as I mentioned, like the Dave Cronenberg like body horror uh, that was introduced to it. And so it felt like it was sort of this confluence of a bunch of different ideas or potential genres that should not work in one movie. But for me, I, I don't know. It was a, it was really an enjoyable experience. And I think, and I talk about it a little bit later, but just sort of like the monsters that are in this, like the monsters are what just sort of made and drew me to the, the whole idea of, of what was taking place. And the first time I watched it, I, I remember just being kind of like really weirded and grossed out by everything that I was, I was observing. But it, it, it made me want to go back and watch it again. Like this was a movie that I had that Netflix disc and I probably watched it like four or five times before I sent it back. So <laughs> big fan. Chad, what were your thoughts of watching this for the first time? Because I'm, I'm so curious. Well, I will say about 30 minutes in, I had thought, OK, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> <laughs> because that's when the big dog kennel scene happens. And yep. I was like, oh, no, I am not into this. I don't know what to think. What am I going to tell Sean? What are we going to talk about? (laughs) But by the end of the film, I had gotten to a much different place because it's not like that kind of stuff was the predominating feature of the movie. There were a couple more scenes of it. The, the, when, when I say that kind of stuff, I mean like the, the creature effects, the kind of blood and gore kind of stuff. It's not severe, but it is maybe a little bit more than I'm 
completely used to. When I gravitate towards horror films, I don't always gravitate towards the the big bloody slasher gory ones. But I really liked some of those things that you were talking about, the tension, the doubt, the distrust, the isolation of it all. Uh, one of the first things that this movie made me think about was The Shining, uh, just because one, that's my favorite. Yeah. It was released only two years previous, um, and it has some of those same themes of isolation. And even some of the camera work is very reminiscent of Kubrick's in The Shining, the, the dolly shots, the, the shots down long, empty hallways. We get that in here as well. And so I, I did end up liking it. Uh, rest assured. Uh, I don't know if it'll be something I watch frequently, but it, it was something I enjoyed, uh, especially when we got into the latter half and it was just like edge of your seat. What's going to happen? Who's who? Who can we trust? Who can we not trust? That kind of stuff. The poster is funny. So going in, I want to say I, I knew nothing about this movie. Zero things. I knew what the poster looked like and I knew it was classified as a horror film. And other than that, I had no inkling of idea of what this was. If you hadn't seen the movie before, it almost it almost looks like the the poster for like the abyss. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. I like Drew Struzan a lot. I've got a few of his posters hanging in my hallway just over here. I've met him. Uh, he signed my Back to the Future poster. Oh, um, so it's a great nice. poster, but it, it really has no ties to the movie whatsoever. I even uh, I was reading he did it in like twenty four hours without even knowing a whole lot about the movie. But like I said, great poster doesn't match the film, but whatever. Not at all. There's. <laughs> You know, there's some weird posters uh, that we could talk about later that have been like released like from Ghana that make almost l- like less sense in terms of what the movie has, which blow my mind. It's just incredible. Yikes. Well, let's go ahead and jump into story discussion. Um, I like the slow build of things at the beginning. Uh, we get the UFO flying in before the title card, bringing in whatever this thing is. And then all of a sudden we're in the remote location of Antarctica. And right off the bat, you get that sense of isolation and the theme of isolation works on several different levels uh, that we can talk about as we go through. But the very first thing is just the, the location itself, Antarctica. How many people do you know have been down to Antarctica? And when you think about it, you think about snow, you think about very low population. And so you know that they're in for a ride because there's nobody going to be able to come to help them no matter what, just because of where they're located. And as we begin, we don't know what's going on. We saw the UFO, but there's nothing to do with aliens right off the start. We see people shooting at a dog. And then right. there's a grenade and the helicopter. I mean, there's nothing to do with aliens right off the bat. And so you're left questioning exactly what kind of ride you're in for in this remote location. Yeah. And I, I think you have this like 13 person cast, like all male cast that are in this base for varying reasons. You can obviously see very clearly that there are, like, are some alliances or some allegiances that are kind of between you know, certain members of the crew that you have that like, exist. And so you can see that even within this isolated place, like they've already formed cliques. There's already divisions in terms of like, what is actually available and, and kind of how they're, they're interacting with one another. You see the Donald Moffat as Gary is sort of dressed uh, like he should almost be in, I don't know, like a national lampoons movie (laughs) of how to be like a, like in the army or something. And, and he almost seems like a fish out of water. Like he does not feel like he belongs in there with like a bunch of like ragtag people who are research scientists manning this base. And just to even see that division between a group in such an isolated place, like you feel even more alone when the camera begins to follow certain individuals, because at that point, you're like, out of these 13, they truly are alone in this place. And that's what's interesting about the camera work, too, is when we talked about The Shining way back in like episode 13 of this podcast, I had Scott Weinberg on, 
we talked about how the camera sometimes took on the perspective of the unknown entities of the film. And I think we get that sometimes in this one as well, where you're just looking down a hallway and you don't know, okay, where is this camera placed? What, what role is it playing here? And so you think, okay, am I looking from the perspective of this mysterious thing that might've taken over somebody at this point might be looking for its next victim. So again, building that sense of isolation and the, the unknown that the, these people are experiencing as, first off, they have no idea what's happening. They don't even know anything is happening until the dog transformation scene. But then later, as we get those isolated shots, we get the sense of unease because we are looking on from the perspective of something that these people don't know is there. Right. Just even the power of suggestion, like the way that they frame a lot of this too, they do a great job of being able to utilize shadow in terms of what's taking place and light. Mm -hmm. and so. You don't really know that the dog is sort of this threat when it comes into the camp initially. And the dog is kind of like roaming around free. And you see this moment where the dog kind of comes out of a door very early on and kind of like walks into a room and you see the shadow of the dog and you see the silhouette of one of the, the crew members that's there kind of like petting the dog. Again, you think it's just kind of a, a regular dog. You know something's probably up. As an educated viewer, you're like, something's, something's wrong with this dog. Something's going on. Otherwise, this movie's going to take a real weird turn. So they do a great job with that, even up to like the use of light that they have to kind of show tension or just even like dramatic effects, even towards the end when a majority of the base is on fire and there's these moments where you see McCready kind of like coming out of like almost darkness and it's just like small slivers of like fire that are just like lighting his face. Like they just do a great job, which is kind of incorporating some of these natural elements that you have that are there that are, that are on the set into kind of like the power of suggestion, which seems to be probably like one of the greatest powers that I think that this movie kind of presents is the tension that it's able to build with, is this person assimilated or not? I think they do a great job and which is why I'm, I'm so curious about if they do a remake of this and they explain more Mm -hmm. I feel like leaving out so much of the text or, or, or keeping it where it is right now does a great job of just kind of allowing your mind to wander, or at least even in that final scene, when you're done with the movie, walking away and having that conversation about, okay, well, like, what, what's, the deal with, what's the deal with these two, you know, right. and, and trying to figure that out. For me, there's a great horror movie like this or a great suspense movie allows you to have that conversation and doesn't really necessarily give you a definitive answer. And that's what I enjoyed about so much of, of kind of why the movies stood out just in general. Lingering again on that dog scene, I, I like the flipping of expectations that they give you because we as people inherently connect with dogs. Mm. And so at the beginning of the film, what was going through my mind at least was this dog knows that something's up. Oh. And so as we're going through this environment and we see this dog interacting with people and staring, you're, you're thinking, or at least I was thinking, okay, uh, the dog knows that something has snuck in. Maybe with these Norwegian people, maybe, I, I don't know what it was, but I, I trusted the dog. <laughs> and so <laughs> they manipulated, oh no, what does the dog sense is wrong into, oh no, the thing that is wrong is the dog. And yeah. so that was, a, that was a big twist for me, was understanding that the dog was the thing uh, rather than the dog was sensing that the thing had snuck in somehow hmm. now i just i watched that whole sequence and i just my takeaway was wow norwegians are a bad shot 
from <laughs> a helicopter. Like, well, I mean, get some target practice in place here because you're not doing great, bud. <laughs> See, uh, even watching that, I was curious whether they were trying to shoot at the dog sometimes or not. Again, hmm. my first time watching, I, di- I didn't know what to expect. So I, at first I was kind of angry. Why are they shooting at a dog? And then I thought, yeah. oh, maybe they're shooting some sort of like sonar into the, the ice. I was like, that sounds like an 80s thing. They're shooting sonar sensors into the ice or something. Okay. That wasn't the case. They were shooting at the dog. <laughs> but still, <laughs> I, I, it left me guessing. And in general, the way suspense is built in this movie is really, really great. That's always the hallmark of a good horror film. The scene that really stands out in my mind for tension building is where Kurt Russell's character, McCready, is testing everybody's blood. Yeah. Because at first, it seems this test method may be fallible. It's, it's not working. He, the right. people he thought were infected, uh-oh, they're not infected. <laughs> or this testing strategy doesn't work. And then all of a sudden, it's proven. And things go crazy for a minute. And once yeah. they, they burn up the person who is infected, the tension becomes even heightened from before because we know this works now. And there's only like three people left who, if any, are infected. And so it, the, those last few were even more suspenseful because of the way that's, that tension built throughout the scene. Anytime you get sort of the, the reveal of the monster, they talk a lot about you know, the idea that whatever it is can like assimilate and take on the shape, even like the memories and everything that's organic about a specific being. And they don't really talk about it, but like the whole concept of the Norris character that's there some point like Norris doesn't have a great heart but this thing assimilates him and it also takes on like his poor heart condition and so at one point when there's all this type of altercation and everything that's taking place Norris who is infected who is assimilated has kind of like a has like a cardiac arrest mm-hmm. and so they they rush him onto this table and full disclosure this is like my I don't know how many times I've watched this movie but this is the first time I've actually watched it with my wife and so that moment where they're actually trying to, to defib the Norris character and then suddenly Norris is like the reveal of like Norris's like stomach opening up with like these teeth. Like my wife, like that was such a great jump scare to watch somebody else have. I mean, I know that I did it my first time watching it, but like to hear somebody else react that way. Oh, it was like it was perfect. It was so enjoyable. But I mean, that's that's the intent. You know, that's I right. think that that's the intent. Like there's so much surprise you didn't understand or you didn't think that that was going to happen. And then suddenly you're just like, Oh my God, that, that dude's stomach is a mouth now and just ate that guy's hands. <laughs> this, it ratchets it up in terms of, you know, how they heighten throughout the rest of the movie, because now you're at this point where you're just like, okay, well like the doctor has gone crazy. And so Blair is acting insane, but you, you have no idea if he, if he is a thing or if he's been assimilated yet. And now in this moment, you're just like, oh, no, we're going to get more reveals. Like these things are going to start to now quickly happen as this alien has this this fight or flight mentality mm-hmm. uh, in terms of how it's engaging with all the humans on the base. So it's, it's just it's so weird that that Norris thing took me to a new place when I watched it. Because I, 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 I didn't <laughs> I things like that. You're just like you, you don't think it's you don't think it's possible to kind of have that. And they're doing all of this with practical effects. And then the clincher is suddenly you see sort of like Norris's head just like fall off and detach from the rest of his body and grow insect legs and an antenna and begin to like walk out of them, like scurry out of the room. And to me, I was just like, oh my God, this is, <laughs> you, you already have like a heart racing moment and then to have something that's so additionally weird that kind of tries to trump everything that you're doing 
I, I sat there just kind of like shaking my head like, oh yeah, I'm, 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 I'm on board with this. This is, this is my jam. Yeah. I'll say if I recognized anything from the movie, I did recognize the Norris thing head, whatever it was. I, I I'd seen a screenshot or something of that before. And I think at the time it was like, okay, not watching that, <laughs> but here I am and it's fine. <laughs> uh, but just to talk about the creature effects for a moment, even though they were kind of like my least favorite thing to watch, I admire the craft of it Yeah, because they're all so detailed. I was reading about this in preparation and the guy responsible for the design of everything. Uh, let me see. What's his name? Um, Rob Botton, who I think was only 21 years old at the time. Uh, if I read that correctly too. And he actually like worked himself to exhaustion and they had to bring in somebody else to help work on some things still. I mean, it's just amazing. All the practical effects in this, uh, they're all detailed. They're almost, if not entirely clever, practical effects. Uh, I think they said that the, the dog one is a puppet that they operated from below and like the tentacles that come out, that was actually filmed in reverse where they pulled the tentacles in and then played it backwards. Uh, I love clever things like that. Yeah. And the, the, the arms being bit off, they hired a double amputee and put fake arms on him. Yep, that's <laughs> and it. The, so you actually had somebody have their arms removed. Uh, that's crazy. That, that's a lot of dedication to making things look as real as possible. And it, it pays off. I mean, that, that's one of the defining moments of the film, I think. I think they ended up paying uh, his like special uh, the special effects budget for everything they had was like 1.5 million. Wow! To be able to make all that happen, that's you know? a lot. And that was that was all like wires, cables, prosthetics, mm-hmm. and just like blood. It was like a combination of just like fake blood, KY jelly, mm-hmm. and Jello. Like it, it's just that stuff is just I can't imagine being on set when they would do that. Like just the mess just seems like just complete carnage and fun. I can't even imagine coming up with the designs for that kind of thing. Yeah. What it says about maybe your mind, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no. still uh, really, really creative. The fact that a lot of them were hand puppets and stuff like that and trying to work within a budget too. There were some things that was like, Oh, this is taking too long. Let's see what we can make work instead. So yeah. Anything else to say about the creatures effect creature effects? No, I mean, I think that they're just, like you said, defining part of the film. I mean, you know, they, they do a great job of just kind of being able to introduce new and weird and, and crazier things, you know, from, from start to finish, you know, from the dog all the way to the, the final. I just love everything about how weird and gory and disgusting they, they made this <laughs> film just for those parts. Character talk. I don't have a whole lot of detailed notes about all the characters, but there are obviously the few standouts, McCready being the, the name one. Uh, what right. do you have to say about McCready? Just, I mean, you know, he's, he's your rugged loner, you know, he, he's reluctant. He doesn't want to do any of the real work. He's the helicopter pilot, the head that's on base. And, you know, he, it makes it very apparent from the get go. I just kind of want to go up to my shack away from everybody else. Again, still very isolated. And I just want to drink this bottle of JB and, uh, not talk to everybody. Right. So <laughs> I'll see you up there, you know? And so it's just, he doesn't really seem like he wants to be there. Half the time, whenever they're just like, oh, you're going to go up in the helicopter? Oh, bad winds. He's like, I'll survive. You know, he just kind of seems to throw caution into the wind for everything that's there. I don't know any way other to say this than like, it is just kind of like pure 80 machismo, sort of a man's man. Like he's going to do the job. He doesn't necessarily want to do it, but he's going to get it done at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're happy to have him on your team. 
And when the moment comes for somebody to assume leadership over, uh, what's his name, uh, Gary, nobody yeah. wants to do it. <laughs> and so he's sort of the de facto leader. And that means he inherits all the issues that come with being a leader in this kind of situation. There's the lack of trust, both of him and him of everybody else. And you have that, that one scene where he's been outside and they found his clothes torn. And that's a sign that maybe he's infected. He comes back right. inside and he makes everybody tie themselves down and test blood. He is doubted by everybody, but he's also very keen to doubt everybody else at the same time. Uh, but he is trying to make the hard decisions to try and save the bigger picture. And yeah. unfortunately, those hard decisions sometimes means, oh, this person gets shot in the forehead or we have to tie everybody down or this person gets isolated from everybody else. And so there's decisions made by McCready to try and get to the bottom of things and try to get to where people can be saved. And then ultimately to say, we're not going to make it out of this. Let's do what we can to just make sure that this, this thing is killed and we go down with the ship. You make a great comment which is the idea that he's going to make, he's going to make the hard decisions. I always think about this from the point of view of, okay, great. He's making the hard decisions, but is he making the right decisions? Right. <laughs> because towards, towards the end of this, I feel like he just kind of said, you know what? Forget all of this. We're just, we're going to, we have a base and you know what? We probably could scrounge a little bit of food and we probably could survive on our own until help comes here. But you know what? Let's just drive our caterpillar right into the side of this base and just destroy everything that we have, you know, with no regard. Like, it's interesting to see, you know, him just kind of have that conversation because nobody doubts him. Like, Nalls doesn't say anything to him. They all just look at him when he says, yeah, we're not going to make it out of here alive. And they're like, yeah, OK, yeah, I get that. I get yeah. that. This is a suicide mission. OK. Like, and I that's that that kind of feels crazy that that's like one of those moments that i think in subsequent rewatches i've always kind of doubted a little bit uh -huh. and said okay maybe we could have like everybody's been through a traumatic experience maybe we pause for a minute and kind of assess where <laughs> we are right now and sort of what strategy we want to do moving forward nope we're gonna just destroy the base okay fine there we go <laughs> well he did earn the the confidence and respect of the others at least uh, at that point in the yeah. film because he'd, he'd had the idea to test the blood and it did end up paying off and they they discovered a couple among them who weren't trustworthy or who had been assimilated at that point. Right. So at that point, it's like, okay, do I question the guy who identified the people who would have killed me otherwise? Maybe not. Yeah. But I, it is fair to say, you know, maybe you should have tried to survive rather than <laughs> just blow everything up. <laughs> I mean, that, uh, that again is just sort of why I say it's like that, you know, that weird, rugged, like 80s machismo of like, oh man, like I don't even care what the job is, but I'm just going to blow everything up. And you're like, but did you have to? <laughs> yeah, I guess you did. Sure. Fine. Uh, that's all right. Makes sure. Sense. <laughs> what other characters do you want to talk about? It was just interesting. I, I think along in the McCready camp, there's Childs uh, played by uh, Keith David, who does a really good job. And he's, he's somebody who is sort of in this film from start to finish. You see a lot of him. He also, towards the end, at the end of the film, he's the only person that's left with McCready. And so I think that just to kind of have those two characters in that final moment, leaving the audience wondering, okay, somebody's, somebody's got to be the thing. Like who it's like clearly child's right. Like mm -hmm. that, that that's who it is. Right. Sure. Right. <laughs> you know, but you, you're never given a definitive answer. And I love child's for kind of coming in and doing that and, and having that moment where they're passing this bottle back and forth. And they're like, I guess we'll just wait and see. And you're like, oh my God, that is, 
probably again, it's unnecessary, but it, it's just, it's such a cool way, I think, to kind of end, uh, especially, you know, watching it and, and just kind of pouring over all the details and, you know, now living in an age where I can just go on Wikipedia and read through all these things. I'm just like, okay, but like, was he the thing? Like who <laughs> was the thing? Like that again, going back to that power of suggestion, I think is just a really powerful tool that's sort of underutilized and, you know, sometimes in, in horror, in the horror genre, the suspense genre. And so, uh, I mean, they make full use of it in this movie. Yeah. Childs from the beginning was always skeptical. He was always distrusting of McCready, especially. And right. I, I was just talking about how McCready was eventually earned the trust of everybody. He never earned the trust of Childs, really. Yeah. Uh, he, he earned the sort of, okay, well, fine, I guess we'll work together at one point. But then there at the end, it is, okay, well, one of us is maybe infected. So let's just see what happens. And so Childs, even in the end, didn't come around to fully trusting McCready, which I think is an interesting part of the character. And that, that ending does leave something for people to talk about and debate. So there's that. And then there's Blair, who's the only other character I had a lot to say about necessarily. Uh, that's the one who is played by Wilford Brimley. And you actually mentioned this earlier. The question over whether he was already infected when he was locked away, I think is a really interesting part of the movie because yeah. at that point he was destroying things. He destroyed the helicopter, he destroyed the tractor, and he was smashing everything and threatening to shoot people. And you wonder, okay, is he infected now? Or is he just going crazy? Is he just trying to keep the thing from getting out because he believes in the, the danger it poses to society that strongly. But then one, when he is isolated and he, we do find out, Oh, he's probably been infected at this point. He's been assim assimilated. We go down into the layer that he sort of built for himself and he's built the spaceship that we've seen, that we saw earlier in the film. And right. so you think, okay, well, when did he get infected? Did he get infected ahead of time? And so him smashing the helicopter and the tractor was so that he could salvage parts to build this thing. Or did it happen later in the movie somehow while he was isolated? Uh, so I, I think that poses a really interesting question. Maybe not one that matters so much to the outcome of the story, but just considering things. I, you know, I, I think, and that's a great point. And I, I want to actually say that he didn't get assimilated. In my opinion, I don't think he actually got assimilated until he was out in the cabin and isolated from the rest of the group. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the reason I'm saying that is because when they actually tackle him in that control room in the communications room that's there, they, they hit him a couple times and they knock him down. And in every other instance that I think that we've seen somebody attack or be around a thing when they've been threatened and he was a pretty, you know, decent size, like, mm -hmm. you know, Wolford Brimley is not like a small dude. And he was being attacked at that point. I think that if he was actually assimilated at that point, that he would have fought back, that he would have attacked. That makes sense. I, I don't, I don't think that this, the thing in terms of the alien doesn't seem to be so super, I don't want to say there's a ton of intelligence because he's, you know, he's obviously creating and building a spaceship, you know, and, and who of us can build a spaceship? You know? So I mean, <laughs> kudos to him. At the same point, though, uh, there's a lot of just like, as we've mentioned, sort of like basic fight or flight that they, they try to take advantage of. And it seems like survival is really sort of the, the key element with kind of nothing above and beyond sort of the basic instincts that they have for, for the thing. So I want to say he was assimilated because he had plenty of time to do it when he was out in that cabin. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And that said, do you think that when McCready dropped by later in the film and he was like, OK, please let me out. I promise I won't hurt anybody. Do you think he was assimilated then? 
Yes, 100%. Yeah, yeah. that would make yeah, sense because he's trying to get himself out and he's trying to take people down. Yeah. That, that moment where he's just like, look, fine, whatever I went through, <sighs> I'm over it. I'm ready to come back inside. I don't want to be alone. There was a part of me that was like, yeah, you don't want to be alone because all you're trying to do is assimilate more people, buddy. Uh, are there any other characters or points you want to make while we're talking about them? Uh, Wolfer Brimley is almost unrecognizable in yeah. this movie. Like he does not have the, the, the beard and sort of the stash right. uh, that we, <laughs> we know and we, we think of uh, Wolfer Brimley. Uh, so just like seeing him in this film, every time I watch it and I, I pull up a cast list, I just shake my head. I'm just like, I, <laughs> I forget you're in this film, buddy. Like, well, I will admit that I didn't know he was like an actor. I knew him from okay. the diabetes commercials and that was, sure. that was it. And so yeah. seeing him on the cast list for me was just like, Oh, okay. That's something new. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh no, Has this been memed? Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Very weird. Well, let's talk about the music a little bit. Um, whether it's more Coney's or Carpenter's, maybe we don't know, but uh, yeah. is there anything that stands out about the music to you here? It's fun. I mean, the, the little moments that you do get that are, that are available are, are, are like very synth heavy in terms of what they have. There's always a part of it that to me, it kind of sounded like an irregular heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Like it was like a three beats instead of just like a, for like a regular heartbeat. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if maybe that was like intentional or not, but just sort of like the kind of the heartbeat kind of like idea of like a pulse kind of being heard and audible. I think sometimes you know, can either be either be a very reassuring or be a very weird and threatening sound to suddenly hear. Right. Uh, you know, and I think in order to kind of like maybe get the blood pumping, you know, for a little of it, that was sort of the the drive. It's just a bummer that there wasn't a lot of sound that was actually like standout moments where they they had a lot of great sound and audio that was in this. They did do a great job though with like sound effects, like the wind, uh, you know, for all the snow and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like all of those things felt very real and very threatening. It's just a bummer that the movie or the movie didn't utilize music in a way that could also build tension as well. It kind of feels like a missed beat. Right. Uh, nice pun. No pun. No pun. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that heartbeat thing was probably something that was added by Carpenter. It it's that synth kind of sound. No knocking that. I think it works fine. Um, there is also the the stuff that I think could be attributed to Morcone. Uh, there's some moments with some high strings to build tension, but it's not like Bernard Herman screeching high violins. It's uh, there's some melody to it, but it's got a, a bit of otherworldliness to it. And I, I don't know if you're a musician at all. Um, I'm a musician, not that I'm like professional in any means or a composer. Super poor, super poor musician. <laughs> well, there's a weird kind of music called twelve tone music. The, hmm. There's a composer named Bella Bartok. That sort of champion of this, I think, if that's, I, I'm pretty sure that's right. And what 12 tone music is, there's actually 12 notes, just huh. in general. There are 12 notes and they repeat in different octaves and stuff like that. And the goal of 12 tone music is you play each of those notes in random sequence until you've played all 12 of them before you repeat any of them. Huh. And I, I, I didn't sit down at a keyboard to figure out whether this is truly 12 tone music, but there were moments in the music where it was, it sounded like somebody could have sat down at a synthesizer and just randomly plotted notes in different places. And it was the 12 tone scale or whatever. And so just something that stood out to me, it, it is kind of an otherworldly kind of sound. It's not like the kind of music you're going to hear on top 40. <laughs> yeah. It's not something I'd noticed necessarily in a horror film before. So I, whether that was Morricone or whether it was Carpenter, I don't know, but it was really interesting. Hmm. Now, what I think 
really stands out about a score sometimes is not always just the mu- the moments that the music is really heavy, but also in the moments where they choose to be silent. And there were scenes towards the end down in the generator room where you know something's about to go down because all of a sudden there is no sound, there is no music. And so you know that things are about to happen. And I love when the silence can be just as effective at building tension as the music can be. And so we get both sides of that spectrum in this. Yeah, because at that point, the entire base is on fire. So, I mean, you just, it's a lot of, you know, uh, fire sound effects, you know, just everything's burning all around them and then just sort of go down into this generator room. And then it's just like very pristine. It's very creepy. Mm-hmm. And those, those, those are the moments when Nalls and uh, Gary have slipped off and gotten infected. And it's the moments right before the, the Blair thing has popped up. Yeah. So yeah, great tension builder in that silence there as uh, McCready is looking around trying to figure out what's happening. Um, very, very weird. Now for our final section, we have impact, way things have affected you or takeaways that you have from the film. Do you have any? I want to say in terms of impact, I mean, this, this definitely made me think about practical effects. As you were coming into, and I, I know that this movie came out in 1982, I didn't really watch it till the mid-2000s, but the 90s, people were starting to get like very heavy into like, you know, a CG and kind of like, you know, with Jurassic Park and, and Matrix and, and Phantom Menace. And so you're just, you're kind of pushing the limits and seeing what's possible of creating these like fantastical environments and these, these really rich worlds and creatures that don't exist. And so then you sort of move into this idea of the practical monster effect. And I, I you know, I grew up watching a lot of like Friday the 13th. Like I loved, I loved Jason movies, Child's Play uh, with Chucky. And, and the Alien franchise, seeing a lot of the practical effects that they had used in there, uh, it, it's something that, it felt very nostalgic for me, and I quickly identified with loving some of the themes that were in this movie, but just these, these weird practical effects that they introduced. And so whenever there is a movie that I hear about that has practical effects, or there's a horror film that has something that's interesting, it actually, it's impacted me because it makes me want to reach out and actually go consume that media. Like that's the thing that like draws me to a particular movie. But just as like a takeaway, I realized just like how isolation and loneliness can really just be abject terror for somebody and and just so unbelievably creepy and uneasy. Uh, you know, there, there are other movies that do like a really good job of this, but do it in kind of like a, a less threatening and like menacing way, sort of like uh, Sam Rockwell in Moon or 2001 Space Odyssey, still very threatening, you know, but not as like gory and bloody, you know, and mm-hmm. then you, you see other movies like Alien, you know, the original Alien film. I can draw a lot of parallels just in terms of like how the isolation just kind of really creeped me out. There's a part of me now that just being home alone sometimes just by myself, like, I hear like wind outside or I hear something, you know, uh, outside of my place. Like I get freaked out. Like I still get freaked out when I'm alone sometimes. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's just like carried through with me and has been something that's sort of like not instilled from this movie, but just from the movies that I have watched over the years. I just, I don't want to be alone, Chad. Just don't want to, just, I don't (laughs) want to be alone. The moment we, the moment we wrap here and we are done, I'm running to another room. Like I'm trying to find people. Isolation can corrupt you, I think is something that this movie shows. And there's, there's many ways isolation takes place. There's obviously the, the, the setting itself. Antarctica is pretty isolating from the rest of the world. 
And when the Norwegians first appear at the beginning of the film, the Americans fear that these guys suffered from cabin fever, which is a symptom of prolonged isolation. And then they are in danger from the thing and no one can help them because they're isolated. They isolate Blair from the group and he's eventually transformed in his isolation somehow. And so all these things that it's both the things that they isolate and being isolated themselves that cause scarier things to happen down the line. Right. There's also the inherent distrust and betrayal between everybody that I think stands out of each other of themselves, not knowing whether they've been assimilated because the way it's saying it seems is the fight or flight that is triggered by the thing is something that is inherent and it isn't known to the host necessarily. Mm. They take on the memory of the person they're inhabiting or the, the person they're becoming. And so it, it almost seems as if they don't know whether they have been infected until all of a sudden they're trying to infect the next person. Uh, so they, they don't know whether to trust themselves. In that scene when they're testing the blood, it's just as scary to think that you're the thing as it is to think the person next to you is a thing. Yeah. There's also, I think, uh, this is something I sort of gleaned from reading elsewhere a little bit, but the lack of communication between each other, especially between like Childs and McCready, because there's never a point in the film where they try and like overcome their differences or they try to communicate with each other and trying to figure out where the other one is coming from or what's happening in what they're thinking in this kind of situation. Instead, they're just content to continue to not trust each other. Right. And that's where we leave them at the end of the film is, hey, let's toast to our distrust of each other. One of us is probably going to kill the other one. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking to the lasting effects of, uh, or the lasting legacy of practical effects, I, the ones that stand out to me, I haven't seen as much of the 1980s horror, but Raiders of the Lost Ark, the melting Nazi faces oh, stands yeah. out to me. So good. That's the first one to come to mind. And so I love... And I mean, Star Wars, Star Wars is still using practical effects largely after the prequel sort of worked <laughs> against them in the new trilogy. They used practical effects for as much as they could. Right. And so I think there's something that's more tactile about looking and seeing, OK, that's a real thing that somebody built to put behind the camera. And I could, if I was in the right place, reach out and touch it. And that just makes something either uh, more lovable in the case of like Porgs <laughs> yeah, or like a baby Yoda. And yeah, Baby Yoda is a good one as well. <laughs> or a much, much scarier. Right. So here we get the, the scary end of the spectrum. But yeah, there's something about practical effects that just heightens a film for sure. Are there any other final thoughts or things you want to say? Sort of about the, the whole distrust between people, you know, and just we're talking about loneliness and isolation and just the fact that like humans are social creatures. Like we want to be in groups of people. It's so weird that I, I was in a, a training about emotional IQ earlier today, and the person who was leading the, the exercise was kind of asserting the idea that, you know, most people, men specifically, tend to try to approach problems with logic as opposed to emotion uh, in many cases. And so, I mean, I, I know that I'm probably guilty. It probably rings true for me. So it makes sense. Checks out is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you know, but once you, once you quickly introduce the idea of like a threat or the, you know, something fantastical, um, you know, or the unknown, you know, in such a, an isolated place, like it's just, it's interesting to see kind of all that logic get thrown out and just, you know, how quickly, as you mentioned, like people can just kind of begin to turn on themselves and never actually like sit down and, and really have that conversation about saying, okay, what's our objective and our goal? Like, what are we really trying to accomplish? Like, are we as people trying to survive or am I just as one singular human trying to survive above everybody else? And I mean, that's, it's weird because that's the direction that 
1982 thing went in. It's kind of the direction that the 2011 The Thing, which was a prequel that was supposed to be at the Norwegian base, that like the final moments of that lead into the movie The Thing, which is kind of a nice tie-in, which is super fun. You know, Uh, so it's just, it's interesting to kind of see how they work some of these things together in terms of like these different themes and stuff like that. And so for me, The Thing is, like as my final thought, The Thing is like one of those few properties that like I'll actually open up my wallet and spend a lot of money on. And a couple of years ago, Mondo released a board game and it was like an advanced pre-order and it came with like a signed limited edition print from the artist Jock. And so I, I spent money on this. I've only played the board game once. I will say, though, that it's a really fun board game. But was it worth the $150 that I paid for it? You know, I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, yeah, it was 100% worth 100% worth the money that I paid for it. So That's awesome. Yeah. There was just a board game based on The Shining that came out that I almost picked up last week because oh, it looks serious? really, really cool. But then I thought, who's going to play The Shining with me? Nobody <laughs> in my friend circle. I, I might buy it, play it with myself. But uh, in any case, I definitely know that feeling. I feel like that's the definition of The Shining game is a game you just play with yourself. I feel like that's like spot on. Yeah, probably. It's what you should do, Chad. And it's also what you should not do, Chad. <laughs> Well, I, I definitely understand the need to buy certain things that are related to a property. Every time Funko comes out with new Office Pops or new Avatar The Last Airbender Pops, oh, yeah. they, they just announced today Korra, Legend of Korra Pops, and I thought, oh no, there goes my wallet again. <sighs> there's several things. Those are just a few recent examples, yeah. but there's, there's something to be said about films that uh, linger with you, and I think in the genre of horror, uh, especially when you look at some of those 1970s, 1980s horror films, I think it tends to be true that the ones you see earlier in life or the ones you see first are the ones that linger with you the most. Like The Shining is my favorite scary film, mm. and it's probably like the first classic that I ever saw after seeing The Strangers when I was 17. I would assume that The Thing, maybe I'm wrong, The Thing might have been one of the first ones you saw. No, I mean, I, I had been like pretty, I had been like my mid-20s when I finally watched this, uh, mm-hmm. so... I had watched a ton of horror uh, no, okay. you know, prior to that. So, but I think kind of as we were talking though, I think some of the themes that I had watched in some of those earlier horror, mm-hmm. just like, you know, we talked about like isolation and threat and kind of like unknown terror, uh, like from, you know, any of the, the Jason movies or, or, or alien, like that was something that I quickly identified. That's why this movie felt so familiar to me when I watched it finally. That makes sense. And I talked about how I saw similarities between this and The Shining. And, you know, I was thinking while we were talking just now that it reminded me of my reaction to Midsummer, which came out last year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in which I was watching that movie and I was like, kind of like, oh, eh, eh, not sure about this. And in the end, I thought, okay, I kind of want to watch it again now that I know what to expect. And I, yeah. I kind of have the same feeling about the thing is I want to explore it more so I can see what I get from a second viewing and from a third viewing and just see how my experience with it changes over time. Uh, which I think is some of the best parts about watching movies is having those repeat viewings to see how your perspective shifts. Yeah, definitely agree. Well, if that's all we have to say, that is the end of the 87th episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for joining me, Sean. Yeah, thank you, Chad. Thanks for having me, man. Absolutely. Uh, I'll give you a chance to plug in just a second. Plugs for this show. There's facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please go over to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating, drop a review. Say something nice. Say something that you like about the show. We'd love to have more reviews because it helps to expose it to more people so we can grow our audience. Uh, If you have any feedback or ideas that you'd like to give directly to me, 
you can always email thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. Now, Sean, where can people find you? Oh, man, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Paul Ellis. You can also find me weekly. I'm the co-host of the Saturday Morning Cartoons podcast. Remember, that's Morning with a U, uh, which is the Collider weekly podcast that they have. It comes out every Saturday. And you can download that anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Uh, if you live in Washington, D.C., you can see me. I do live improv comedy with a group that's called Knox. That's N-O-X exclamation point. You can find tickets and times with dc.org. And I'm also now on an improvised comedy podcast called The Bureau. Uh, so if you have ever listened to Teacher's Lounge on Earwolf, it is in the similar vein of Teacher's Lounge, but it's people who are in a break room at the FBI. That sounds like a lot of fun. I might have to check that one out. <laughs> it's very, it's, vi- it's very enjoyable. I play a health and human resources person. And so it is just, it's, it's three other really good friends and we're just, uh, we're having a really good time with it. So I think we finished season one and then that should be out within like the next month. Like, okay. Should be completely out within the next month. Great. I, I will look into it cool. and I would recommend everybody else check that out as well as Saturday morning cartoons for sure. Thank you. Uh, The best place to find me is on Twitter at Chadadada. That is (laughs) C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A. I love that you are laughing at that. (laughs) So good. Thank you. So good. You can also find me on Facebook sometimes, facebook.com slash chad.hopkins. And there's my other podcast, An American Workplace, which is finished. But we talked about every episode of NBC's The Office. You can find that where podcasts can be found and workplacepodcast.com. And show notes and contact information for this show can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And once again, Sean, thank you. I had a lot of fun talking with you. This is our first time meeting. It's yeah. the first, you're the first new guest on Cinescope in a very long time. Yes. <laughs> Did it. So I'd love to have you back sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as a returning guest next time, which will be a lot of fun. Very cool. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, everybody. Have fun and celebrate movies. Yeah.